It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to uh, Maui. Okay, uh, we may as well just get started right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Tilly. And I'm Ben. And uh, this is Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, a Moby Dick podcast. Uh, we are going through Moby Dick, uh, uh, a handful of chapters every episode, um, and kind of uh, we're reading it and, and uh, summarizing it and, and talking about it. For some reason right there, I really wanted to um, like like do it like a hype, like woo, but a whale noise. And then I realized both that that was really silly. And secondly, I can't make whale noises with my mouth. <laughs> so that, that's, uh, where, that's where my brain's at. Well, uh, that's good. That sounds like, I mean, strong podcast energy in that you had a, a good idea. You had like a wild idea. You, you've got like the spice, but you also had the sense not to try to make a whale noise on mic. Sure. <laughs> uh, uh, Do you want to start with the uh, the summary? Yeah, we may as well get right into it. Um, we have like a... I don't know. Uh, I I think a slightly long section for today. Um, I I try to like w- when when we're dividing it up into which section we're gonna do for which ep- episode. I think I try to aim for like seven thousand words, and this one is like eight thousand. Yeah, but I really wanted to start with the Lee Shore, which is my favorite chapter in the book. Which is a it's a competitive category, and this chapter is approximately half a page long, and it's still my favorite. So. Um, I will be on my bullshit next episode. I'll be on yeah. all my bullshit. Yeah, so that's that will come up next episode. But this episode, uh, we are reading um, uh, chapters 17 through 22. Uh, I just had to double check what mm-hmm. the last one was. 22. 23 is the Lee Shore. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let's get started with chapter 17, which is called The Ramadan. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a so um this this has already come up uh I think maybe last episode um that uh Quiqueg is undergoing like kind of a a day of of fasting and ritual uh, as part of his religious observances and Ishmael in writing refers to this sometimes as Quiqueg's Ramadan. Um which I mean, you know, you can see the obvious analogy Ramadan is a season of fasting. Um, but it is a little weird that he's using it almost as a generic term. Yeah, he's, he's definitely using it as a generic term. He's using it as like a, not just a generic term, but like specifically for, it's fasting and religious and religious contemplation, but specifically non-Christian. And he's just, it's the same as using pagan throughout this book, or in fact, cannibal as like the, the counter sign to Christian, where there's two kinds of religion in the world. And if it doesn't apply to Christianity, it applies to all the rest. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, uh, it's, so I haven't really been paying that much attention. I don't remember 
that many previous references to Islam in this book. Um, like, it, it would be interesting to... Because, I mean, clearly here he's drawing a, like, direct correlation between uh, Muslim observance and, like, Queequeg's yeah, I... made-up pagan observance. But... Uh, I, I'm not I sure. I mean, but even even the phrase pagan there, it's. I just think it's fair to say that Ishmael, at least, maybe not Melville, but Ishmael divides all religion into like two categories: Christian and other. I mean, you say that, but I think he definitely doesn't. Con- like, I think he definitely has like a third category for like Jews, because mm, that's a good point. You couldn't really have like old testament bible stories without well, that's, that sort of that... weird category so i i would like to point out that there's a long christian tradition called supersessionism that actually does precisely away with that category the argument basically being that judaism has been superseded by christianity and dissolved into it so this was a medieval christian thing they would claim all of jewish history from uh the old testament to christianity but um all of that that history as now belonging to the Christians, and people who are still practicing Jews are sort of almost cut off from it because they didn't move with the times to the correct new model. And I think, I don't remember if Judaism ever really comes up that much in um, Moby Dick, but I there is an existing theo-historical framework for doing that, for having a stark Christians or in you know Christians and prior to Christ Jews versus the rest of the world model. Yeah, I mean that's fair. I guess I'm just like uh I I I I just think that uh it's hard to say I I'm I'm not sure that I feel like I've seen enough evidence at this point to conclusively say yes, that's how Ishmael sees the world. He doesn't have a concept of like people of the book or whatever. Okay, that, um, that's fair enough. We'll, we will see if it comes up. It might just not really be present. But yeah, that's, fascinating that's question. Enti- yeah, um, I, I, you know, we'll see. Anyhow, uh, so <laughs> to get yeah, to this wow. chapter, uh, I feel like we're maybe... Because uh, this chapter is, is sort of uncomfortable because it's all about this, like, made-up religious practice. And it's also all about how uncomfortable Ishmael is with it. Um, so, uh, he, he, Ishmael leaves Queequeg to do his, uh, practices, um, until nightfall, um, because he sort of explains at length that he thinks, you know, it's only fair for him to respect Queequeg's religious beliefs, um, with a lot of, uh, just sort of a lot of, like, condescension about it, you know, um, he's, he's making it very clear that he... He does view what Queequeg is doing as kind of ridiculous, and he pretty much expects that his audience will as well. Um, but but he then is also like, oh, sure, but isn't everything that we Christians do just as crazy looking from the outside? So he is like, you know, uh, he has that degree of sort of like generosity about it, but, um, but it still does involve making it very clear that he thinks that this is a uh, kind of a nonsensical behavior. Yeah, I mean, I I would like to say, because I, I also had this response to the earlier Queequeg versus uh, Father Mapple sections, that mm-hmm. I think that a lot of this is about um, is about Queequeg's 
uh, theoretical universalism, but also his discomfort with this, and also about, yeah, his hypocrisy. He's he's literally, uh, we'll get to it in a second, but there's ways in which I think... Sorry, wait, you mean... Uh, Ishmael, Ishmael's... yes, I misspoke. Yes, yeah. sorry. Ishmael's <laughs> fundamental hypocrisy here that, that we'll get to in a second, but I think the, the easiest way of looking at it is a Christian saying your asceticism is too intense when they are themselves obsessed with, like, the ascetic side of Christianity is a very, it's hypocritical. Ishmael is not, um, is not actually practicing in a lot of ways the positions he's otherwise taken. And I think that, I think that if you read this as being about Ishmael's relationship to these religious ideas and maybe that, and less as an attempt by Melville to directly express ideas through him, while the chapter still has some definitely uncomfortable stuff, uh, especially involving, you know, the fact that this is a, sort of fantastically pagan cannibal religion invented by uh, Melville, you know, presumably based on his travels in order to have this dichotomy, I don't think it's coming down hard on the side of Christianity, if you see what I mean. Yes, no, that's definitely true. I, I think, uh, like, I, I do think that, like, at the end of this chapter, Ishmael comes away from it looking a, a little more ridiculous than Queequeg does on the whole. Um, or mm -hmm. a, a little more, like... Yeah, I I do think uh, uh, we're we're not meant to like view Ishmael as like a, a as you said as an author voice here. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so so eventually though he does go to check in on Queequeg um, at the evening, and uh, Queequeg will not open the door or respond to anything Ishmael says. Um, and Ishmael is worried that Queequeg may have suffered a fit, so he looks in through the keyhole. Um, and he can't see Queequeg from that vantage point, but he can see Queequeg's harpoon leaning against the wall, um, which tells him that Queequeg has to be in there because uh, Queequeg would never uh, willingly let it out of his sight. And um, the last place they saw it was that the landlady of the inn had taken it away. So basically Ishmael immediately assumes, oh, he's gone and got his harpoon and he's keeping it with him. Uh, so... Ishmael keeps shouting at the door, and nothing happens, so he tries to force the door, um, which he can't do by himself. Uh, so he runs out to alert ev everyone, um, which is, the people he alerts are, are the maid of the inn and Mrs. Hussey, the landlady. Um, he, uh, they get, he shouts for them to get an axe to pry the door open, um, but he's sort of freaking out, and, uh, it's not entirely clear what he's asking for until Mrs. Hussey makes him slow down. Um, and she confirms that the harpoon is missing from the closet she was keeping it in. And once she sees that, she immediately assumes that uh, Queequeg has imitated Stiggs, her previous tenant, who ha had committed suicide in that room. Yeah, um, which... I, or at least suicide with a harpoon. Was it in that room? Yeah, so, um... It, I, I remember from the... I remember, first of all, you were totally right. The The problem was that Stiggs committed suicide with a harpoon. I was sort of skeptical of that reading, but you were absolutely correct. Yeah, um... Uh, well, I don't want to pause to, like, look it up in the previous chapter, so I'm not going to go, like, confirm whether... Maybe it wasn't actually in the exact same room. Um, but the... There was this whole thing about how, like, the landlady won't let her tenants bring... Uh, yeah, harpoons in. Harpoon, or, or yeah. like weapons of any kind. Yeah. Uh, because she doesn't want them to kill themselves because that happened to her before. Yes. Um, and she very clearly views it as like a... Mm, Nuisance? Like a, 
Yeah, a nuisance, that's a good way of putting it. Um, which you can tell from, uh, what she immediately says, um, about, like, when she, once, once she's concluded that Queequeg has committed suicide, just like Stiggs did, uh, she starts telling the maid to go, uh, get a sign made out that says, no suicides. Well, um, it says, it says, no suicides permitted here and no smoking in the parlor. Because you might as well kill two birds with one stone. Right, so she clearly views those as, like, equivalent, uh, you know, breaches of, uh, of politeness. Yeah, they're, you know, they're problems for someone running an inn. Uh, if someone smokes in the parlor, it'll smell of smoke. And if they kill themselves, um, you get then blood on the counter. Then their ghost will haunt the room. Well, no, she doesn't even say that. She says, um, she actually says, uh, there goes another counterpane. She's worried about the blankets. Oh my god, you're absolutely right. Uh, that's a very good point. Um. Anyways, this, everyone panicking in the room outside being, uh, being done. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, Ishmael, sort of confused, he hasn't gotten the axe he asked for, but he runs upstairs and tries to force the door again. Um, uh, Mrs. Hussey gives him a key, but it doesn't open the internal bolt. Um, so then Ishmael rushes the door again and finally manages to get it open. Um, and what he sees inside is Queequeg squatting motionless in the middle of the room with Yojo on his head. Um, and neither Ishmael nor Mrs. Hussey can get him to talk or move. Uh, so Ishmael decides, uh, or Ishmael convinces the landlady that he'll take care of this. Um, and he tries to get Queequeg to sit in a chair a little more, but then he just sort of concludes, okay... This is part of his religious observances, and uh, he just goes to dinner. Um. Hi, uh, we just took a short break because there was a bit of a problem recording, so we went, got something to drink, uh, you know, took a little bit to talk about it, and now we're back. So, uh, we were just talking about how Queequeg was uh, fasting and holding Yojo on his head, and Ishmael was getting really antsy about uh, about this after he came back from dinner. Or, no, he'd just gone to dinner when we uh, when we had the recording problem. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's kind of a um, a back and forth of like Ishmael uh, kind of uh, checking in on Queequeg and then being like, uh, "All right, fine. I, I guess he's just doing this. He'll he'll have to finish up soon." And then a few hours later, he goes back and like it's like, "Oh, he's still doing it." <laughs> um, and uh, he he the last thing that happens before Ishmael goes to bed, he throws his bearskin jacket over Queequeg, so at least he won't get cold. Um, and then uh, the next morning, uh, Queequeg ends his uh, his fast, I guess. Um, or he, he breaks out of his position as soon as the sun appears at the window in the morning. Um, yeah, um, there's also, um, well, Ishmael tries a number of times to get Queequeg to stop, uh, including some fascinating theological claims trying to uh, convince him to uh, break his fast. Uh, I believe you, you pulled one out in the summary. Yeah, so, uh, so at, this is, I think, uh, Ishmael's kind of assuming that Queequeg may have literally not heard or understood anything that he said while he was trying to, like, shake him and move him. Uh, so he now gives Queequeg what I can only assume was a really annoying lecture, um, <laughs> yeah. about, about how he's gone too far and this isn't good for him and, like, 
in fact, all ascetic practices throughout history of in all the religions of mankind are like pointless and dangerous. Uh, I believe you mean they are um, stark nonsense, bad for the health, useless for the soul, opposed, in short, to the obvious laws of hygiene and common sense, which is quite a a position to take on religious devotion, Ishmael. Yes. Uh, So that's, yeah, he's he's very, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Strident. He's very strident on this subject. Uh. Yeah. and that go on oh no uh please okay so uh i was just gonna move on to the dyspepsia thing yes i was i was hoping you were yeah okay so (laughs) so in in fact uh as part of his outlandish claims about how terrible fasting etc are um ishmael claims that uh dyspepsia caused by fasting is the origin of the idea of hell um and or or is the like Basically that people think of, like, shitty, gloomy religious ideas when they're feeling sick to their stomachs. Yep. Um, I, I think the, the phrase uses, all thoughts born of a fast must necessarily be half-starved. This is the reason why most dyspeptic religious, re, sorry, religionists cherish such melancholy notions about their hereafters. Uh, and then... In, in what has to be one of the few times Ishmael is truly self-aware. Um, in one word, Queequeg said I rather digressively. <laughs> Hell is an idea first born on an undigested apple dumpling. And so we earlier, I think, discussed whether Ishmael is a universalist, whether he believes in hell, because he's very, he's very definitely weird Christian. So, and I would argue that this is, this shows he's a universalist. He doesn't think hell is real. He thinks everyone's going to some kind of higher hereafter. And that would explain a lot of his, um, Catholic in the, in the small C sense, religious sensibilities, his very, his universalism, his his openness, because it he he's very not judgy about religion, because they're all going the same place, and it's not bad, sort of. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I I I think uh, I think you're right. This this passage is definitely a rejection of the idea of hell, um, uh, which which is he and and he is like surprisingly kind of uh, casual about it, you know, like yeah. Um, he he's kind of taking it as a given that Queequeg will accept that <laughs> hell is a bad idea. To be when fair, fact, Queequeg doesn't necessarily care about hell in the first place. So yeah, what I was about to say is like we have no idea what Queequeg's beliefs about the afterlife are. True, um, it's it's entirely possible that Queequeg does believe in some kind of like suffering after death, and like maybe thinks that that part of Ishmael's argument is bad. Yeah, I mean, or maybe he thinks it's ridiculous. Uh, but doesn't, like, we have no idea what he makes of any of this. Yeah, no, he has no responses to Ishmael's arguments. He has absolutely no interest in, in this theology, not least because he's still fasting when this happens. So he's just staring dead ahead, holding Yojo over his head, while Ishmael's just being like, ah, fasting is such a bad idea, and you should really eat enough food, because if you don't eat enough food, you'll come to silly religious positions like hell. And I can only imagine Queequeg is just quietly thinking to himself, just ignore him, just ignore him, just ignore him. Yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like also good evidence for this is is how Queequeg changes the subject. Um, <laughs> because, uh, so, so this whole claim about um, 
dyspepsia, you know, dyspepsia caused by fasting. Um, uh, Ishmael then is like trying to explain what dyspepsia is uh, to Queequeg. Uh, and Queequeg says that he's only ever had it once uh, after a cannibal feast that he partook in after a great battle his father had won. Um, which is like, I hadn't thought of that until like this, this moment, but the idea that this is basically Queequeg, uh, like either just changing the subject to something that's like more enjoyable to him or possibly like trying to upset Ishmael. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it's quite, given that Ishmael's previous lecture included, uh, according to him, the rise and progress of the primitive religions and coming down to the various religions of the present time, I think there's a decent sense that Queequeg is just trying to very much reject uh, Ishmael's framing uh, and possibly, like, discomfort him right here. Not necessarily, like, in a mean way, but... I don't know. I just can't imagine uh, Queequeg is super well uh, inclined towards Ishmael in this particular moment after having to listen to him for, like, a while. Yes. Um, anyway, so uh, Ishmael does uh, blanch at this, um, uh, but he does uh, describe the, the grisly details of exactly what the feast looks like. Um, supposedly something he heard about from a sailor who'd been to... Uh, Kokovoko, Queequeg's Island. And, uh, it's pretty, like, it's pretty cartoonish. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... I, I would say that it's just treating human meat as meat, which does tend to look pretty, you know, cartoonish, since that's not really how it would be done necessarily. But I think that like what he's describing, if you didn't know it was humans, it would just it's not like there's, you know, piles of skulls or anything. Wow, why am I defending defend defending the, the appetizing nature of this description? This is this is a weird bit. <laughs> yeah, so I mean I personally find like reading about cannibalism in books extremely upsetting. Uh much less to speak of like ever seeing it in any visual medium. Um, so, like, I find this passage very unpleasant to read, but that's just because I really hate reading about cannibalism. So, um, yep, you're fair, probably right fair. that on some level, uh, it's not actually, like, it's not really the bloodthirstiness that's being emphasized here so much as the, like, uh, uh, I think intended to be funny resemblance to, like, what we would think of as a grand feast of like yeah I, I think the there's something supposed to be funny and off-putting about how about the normalcy this is presented with yeah yeah that, that, that that's which I think, I think does un, right. does double down on how unsettling it is yes um but we're done with cannibalism for now <laughs> uh, for, for now. now uh but for but yeah now. so uh, I mean, that seems to pretty much bring their conversation to a halt. Um, and Ishmael reflects that he doesn't really think his arguments had much effect on Queequeg, uh, which is, you know, pretty much what we had already, like, concluded from yep. the response that Queequeg has. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, and Ishmael kind of, like, speculates on the reasons for that for a little bit. Um I think the um, the reason that we should sort of pull out here, because I think it really does speak to this 
chapter as a whole and what, what Melville is doing rather than what Ishmael's doing, um, is uh, finally he no doubt thought he knew a good deal more about the true religion than I did. He looked at me with a sort of condescending concern and compassion, as though he thought it a great pity that such a sensible young man should be so hopelessly lost to evangelical pagan piety. And I just want to point out that literally this entire scene so far has been Ishmael doing that exact same thing to Queequeg. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that, that like sort of looking at someone with like religious condescension and like thinking that they just don't understand. 100% yes. Yeah. So the, I think that's sort of the, the, the key point to me is that this is a point of mutual incomprehension where both of them are well inclined towards the other, but they're never going to see eye to eye when both of them are just basically going, my religion is right, by the way. Queequeg's yeah. just less obnoxious about it, frankly. Yeah, I mean, Queequeg doesn't ever, like, really state it. He just sort of implies it by looks. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, the fact that he does his rituals and uh, has no particular concern for Ishmael's, and, you know, I mean, much yes. like vice versa. Yes, but, like, I, I also mean that there's just a lot of moments like this, um, like this one that you just read aloud, where yeah. uh, Ishmael sort of describes, like... Uh, a, often a quite complicated idea that he feels was communicated by Queequeg's, like, expression. That is true. Um, Queequeg is apparently just has the the eyebrows of a debater. I mean, you know, I find it not implausible because they are, like, they have become extremely close, um, even if very quickly. This is uh, true. It's been a whirlwind bromance. And, uh, and Queequeg is probably used to communicating with people who don't who, with whom he doesn't share a language all the time, right? Um, I mean, that's not quite true. He does speak English, but, like, he clearly would have good reason to, like, develop the skill of being extremely expressive. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's that's the end of that chapter. That's their, uh, that's their morning. Yeah, it's um, not a short chapter, despite the fact that, like, not much happens in it physically or plot-wise. Yeah, I think I think the sort of the point of it really is this, uh, um, you know, this this theme that you were pointing out about like the reversal of their religious attitudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. So, and now some Quaker humor. <laughs> yeah, so moving along <laughs> to uh, the next chapter, chapter eighteen, his mark. Uh, so uh, this is. Uh, they they have uh, headed out to the wharf for the Pequod, um, and uh, they they encounter the captains Peleg and Bildad on the ship. Um, Peleg stops them, and he insists that Queequeg show his papers, um, which is to say, prove that he's been baptized. Uh, and he certainly doesn't have any kind of papers like that. Um, so Ishmael tries to fast talk them about it. Uh, and he starts out claiming, he, he says, oh, Queequeg is a member of the First Congregational Church. Uh, but he's called on this bluff uh, because there is actually, I, I, it almost comes, to, comes across to me as, as if he's just like throwing out a church name. Well, it's, it's a specific church name for, for theological reasons, but he's definitely like, because um, do you mind if I go slightly ahead with this? 
Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, he, he goes on to argue that, you know, the first congregational church that we're all in, the inherent church of the soul, for he too was born a human being, and, you know, it's, it's all like that. But the way the captains take it is, the first congregational church, what, that worships at Deacon Deuteronomy Coleman's meeting house? Like, yeah, he's so like, they're oh. like, oh, here's a specific first congregational church. I've never seen Queequeg there. Uh, what are yeah, you talking and about? Definitely, Ishmael has never been there. And I can, I sort of imagine that if this were like a, a cartoon or uh, a, a movie, there'd be that like, oh, the first congregational church that, you know, like classic cut to their face going like, oh, no, that one really exists. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's definitely trying to make a, a larger claim. And to be fair, once he's made the larger theological claim, they're willing to put up with it. So I I will say, I think this is more of that, like, uh, Bildad, Capelleg, uh, like, um, hucksterism. That, like, yeah, this is their little one-two performance. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Uh, it, it, and um, I, I think also uh, part of part of the, the reason that um, they, you know, don't hold them up even though uh ishmael's claim that basically at however uh moving ishmael's speech about universal brotherhood may have been it certainly doesn't in any way support the idea that queequeg is a christian right yeah um not even slightly oh yeah the uh, opposite but, really uh but peleg is perfectly willing to let it slide uh and uh he 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 claims that it's because he's like delighted with uh, the the little sermon that Ishmael just gave, but I, I think it's also that he's, like, noticed that Queequeg has an excellent harpoon. Yeah, um, yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely correct, and it's definitely the case that the, um, that, you know, these two are a lot more business-minded than Ishmael maybe recognizes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, also at this point, uh, Peleg starts referring to Queequeg as Quahog, um, which is a type of clam. It's uh, it's sort of a visual pun, I guess, because it's spelled Q-U-O-H-O-G, so it sort of looks like Queequeg on the page, but it doesn't really sound that much like it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, first of all, I have no idea whether that has changed in pronunciation at all. Secondly, I think it's just supposed to be him being kind of racist. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It also comes across to me as just kind of like, you know... Um... Like, malapropism as humor, right? Yeah, yeah, um, but I think specifically in the context of Bildad and Peleg, there's a... They're, you know, they're not terrible people, but they're pretty consistently uh, sort of being jerks to uh, new sailors in various ways. Again, they have their whole one-two uh, con. Yes, no, that's that's pretty much true. Uh, but, uh... uh so... Uh, Peleg asks Queequeg whether he's ever hit a fish, uh, and Queequeg, uh, demonstrates his skills extremely dramatically, um, by, like, uh, vaulting onto the ship and pointing out a spot that he's going to hit with his harpoon and nailing it exactly. Um. I think he specifically jumps up onto the ship, then from there leaps up into a, um, so one of- Boats time! It's boats time! I get to do boats. Uh, (laughs) One of the ways that uh, whaling ships would carry their uh, small boats, because you can't actually hunt the whale from the big ship, you put out smaller boats that then row and sail towards the um, 
towards the whale. The whale. Exactly. Um, and that's where you harpoon from. And part of this is so that you have um, more maneuverability and you know just more of them. And part of this is so that if one of them gets dragged under by the whale, it doesn't damage the main boat. You just lose the small boat. But these will be hanging in basically slings up on deck so that they can be lowered into the water over the side. Uh, so he jumps up onto the deck, then from there jumps up into one of those whaling boats so that he can like simulate actually being at the prow of the little whaling boat, the little um, uh, the I guess they're just called whale yeah whale boats is what the book calls them, uh, and then hurls the harpoon from there at like a tiny he's like you see that thing floating in the water bam and hits it with a harpoon. Yeah, uh, so uh, this totally seals the deal for Peleg. He immediately insists uh, that Bildad sign him to the ninetieth lay. Which, um, given given the. Uh, lay that Ishmael got was like the 333rd and that's uh, which they clearly like conned him into when 250th would be reasonable 90th is ridiculous yeah uh, clearly it's it's a it's a good uh, a good setup um, and they average to about like somewhere around the 150th so because uh, Queequeg's probably going to keep doing the thing he was doing where they keep all their stuff in common he was very clear about that so uh, works out for uh, Ishmael quite well that's that's totally true. Um, so they all uh, go below into the, you know, um, below decks on the ship to sign the papers. Um, uh, Peleg asks Queequeg whether he signs or makes his mark. Uh, so he's assuming that Queequeg is probably illiterate. Uh, but what Queequeg actually does is rather than like drawing an X, which would be the normal way of making a mark, he copies uh, one of the symbols in his tattoos. Um, so presumably that is his name in his writing. Yeah, um, it's it's like a, um, it's, it's drawn in my copy of the book, actually. There's like the little scribble by, uh, presumably from Melville, but I didn't look this up, I meant to. Um, but it's like- I would a, be a little surprised if that's original- what, Really? You think so? I mean, I thought the illustrations in your book were like the illustrations specific... are, but this isn't an illustration. This is like an intertextual little. It's like a, it's a little intertextual thing, and it's it's drawn as like a figure. Eight. You know what? I, if you don't mind, I'm going to Google this while we continue with the summary. Yeah, totally. Please, uh, I I feel a little silly for not having looked this up beforehand. Uh, this sounds really cool. Um, if it is actually like from the original manuscript or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to. I want to believe, but we'll see. So, uh, Bildad pushes a tract into Queequeg's hands, um, but, uh, Peleg objects to this, um, because he claims that, uh, pious harpooners never make good voyagers. It takes the shark out of them. Uh, so, you know, now that, uh, Queequeg, even though he's, he was, uh, asking for Queequeg's papers earlier, now he's, like, actively opposed to the idea of Queequeg becoming more Christian because he, he, uh, he's, he's seen his skill. Um. Okay, this, this is interesting. A number of different play, uh, apparently different editions have had different things. Some of them just use a typographic symbol, like a, a cross, a heavy cross. Um, but... The version that I've got, and which I've also seen pop up, which is very clearly like hand drawn, is more like a sideways figure eight. So I don't know if we've got we've there. I don't know if that is actually an original from Melville. It doesn't. It seems less likely now that I'm seeing other th other versions of the book displaying different marks. So I may have just assumed that and been completely incorrect.
Okay. Well, uh, it's definitely interesting to know that, like, there's different versions of that mark in different books. Um, the versions that I've been using, uh, these, like, free online texts, uh, did not have anything there, so I didn't even realize that was a thing. Um, so there's a, there's a little bit of a, a Peleg and Bildad back and forth here. Um, I think the upshot of which is, is basically that they talk about, uh, a past voyage on the Pequod, um, when Bildad is trying to basically get Peleg to admit that he's felt the fear of death, uh, but Peleg insists that during that, uh, typhoon he was too focused on trying to save everyone and save the ship and the practical aspects of that, um, that to be thinking about death. And, uh, that's the end of their conversation. Bildad just walks off in silence, uh, and that's the end of the chapter. Yeah, um, sorry, I've been looking up this mark thing, and it looks as though most things use a typographical sign or an X. Again, I should have looked this up ahead of time, and I apologize to our listeners. But um, I like the version in my book, which has nice illustrations, but yeah, it appears as though this is something that's been um, done via illustration. Which is really interesting to me, in part because we know Melville did actually have experience in... Uh, you know, just meeting and speaking with people from the region of the world Queequeg is supposed to be from. So presumably he had a specific design in mind rather than just an X, because he does describe it very specifically as an exact counterpart of a queer round figure which was tattooed upon his arm. So first of all, it's round. We know it's not an X. It can't be an X. I... Unless it's like an X-Men X, like an X inside a circle. Okay, that that is a pretty good that that is also cool. But um I'm just I'm really curious about this and I can't find any answers uh in quick googling and it annoys me. I I'm, I'm so I'm sorry. Vexed uh, all right, uh listeners, if if you know more about uh Queequeg's mark, uh please at Ben on Twitter. Um, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right. Uh so uh that was chapter 18. Yep. Oh. Um I do also want to uh, note, sorry, I, I think we skipped over it, but it's a very brief thing about Bildad that I thought was just a nice little passage at the end of the, um, at the, end of the chapter. Oh, sure. Uh, describing um, sort of Bildad walking around. It's part of, the, it's part of characterizing Bildad. And it's, what I like about it is it's a very like, quiet little moment of characterization that further helps drive in the character that's been presented in you know, these sort of over-the-top scenes with his back and forth with Peleg, uh, saying that um, uh, Bildad, uh, there he stood, very quietly overlooking some sailmakers who were mending a topsail in the waist. Now and then he stooped to pick up a patch, or save an end of tarred twine, which otherwise might have been wasted. And it's just this very yeah. quiet moment that very clearly communicates that for all that Bildad is the, um, if I remember correctly, he's the religious one, the very religious one. He's the one who's this very stern Quaker concerned so much with souls. But the things that we actually see him doing on the page and even in these conversations is, a, is almost universally a concern with material thrift and, and capital, effectively. So I, and I just think it's a fascinating little moment where this quiet moment of his person isn't reading the Bible or... Um, you know, staring off in contemplation or anything with that. It's just very quietly and conscientiously uh, taking up bits and pieces that are of absolutely no value, like pennies worth. 
I do think that uh, there's no like inherent contradiction there, between those parts of his personality, just given you know the way the whole oh, like Protestant work ethic. Certainly, thing. certainly. I'm not saying it's a contradiction. I'm saying that it helps us to understand how he operates as a religious and as a material figure in the story. And mm. and I think that how people's religion operates in their lives is a. I mean, we just had the last chapter, the Ramadan, which is all about how religion operates in Queequeg's life. And so I just think that this is a nice little quiet moment in a book that is often bombastic. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense to me. Um, and yeah, I definitely think you're right that like this is this little moment of like, um, you know, scrimping and saving uh, the tiniest little bit of nothing um, because he's just that, uh, just because he's just that kind of person. Uh, yeah. I do think that that is kind of like Bildad in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Ooh, okay. and, and now it's the prophet. Yes. So chapter 19 is titled the prophet. Um, so, uh, in this, uh, boy, there's a lot of, uh, I'm going to do my best to, um, give like an, an accurate, uh, description of this chapter without going into every little back and forth of the conversation, because there's a lot of basically Ishmael turning away and then turning back and then turning away. Yeah, there's, it's, it's not a clean conversation. I do, however, love that the first line of it and the first line of the chapter is, shipmates, have you shipped in that ship? Ship, 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 ship. <laughs> yes. Uh, so a, a stranger accosts Ishmael and Queequeg as they depart from the Pequod and asks them that question. Um, and uh, Ishmael is is clearly kind of made uncomfortable by the stranger's shabby clothing and his pox-scarred face. And uh, the question or the conversation quickly turns bizarre uh, because once Ishmael confirms that yes, they are shipped on the Pequod. Uh, the stranger asks whether they signed anything regarding their souls. Um, which, you know, Ishmael just says, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, as as one would. Um, and, and the other guy uh, quickly says, oh, it's all right if you haven't got any. Um, and, you and know, that's, that's uh, really setting the tone for the whole conversation. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, there's just going to be some uh, extremely awkward, like, an ominous theological discussion. I don't uh, even think it gets the level of a theological discussion. Ishmael's just trying to leave. It, he's really bad at leaving, though. Yeah, I yeah. mean, he, he hears a lot from this guy. Yeah, but to um, be fair, the guy seems to be, like, following them down the street. It's like, I I just think there's, there's something very uh, direct about the way it's this, you know... Uh, shabbily dressed kind of weirdly discussing guy following down the street and not letting them leave it's just like ah ishmael this must be how you appear to people sometimes yeah maybe that's uh, a little unfair he's not quite as uh pushy as this guy he also i, I think you know uh the, the the fact that ishmael is repulsed by the guy's uh scarred face is you know ishmael doesn't have that problem at least mm-hmm. um but uh anyway so uh, so the the stranger, after making this kind of comment about souls not being important, he also adds, he's got enough, though, to make up for all deficiencies of that sort in other chaps. So he's, I guess, implying that Ahab has, like, overflowing amounts of soul. Yeah, which... he, al- he also introduces Ahab's nickname, Old Thunder. Ah, yes. Um, so uh, Ishmael, at this point, he clearly wants to be totally done with this situation, um, and he maybe suggests... He says something like, 
he's escaped from somewhere, which I took to mean maybe like escaped from a like an an asylum. Um, but yeah, I actually, I think that was the implication that this is that this um this other sailor must have escaped from Bedlam. Yeah, um, something like that. Uh, so he uh he tells Queequeg they should go. Um. Uh, the stranger asks if they've met Ahab. Um. To which Ishmael replies that, well, they haven't because, uh, he's, he's sick right now. Uh, he's supposed to be all right soon. Um, and, uh, the stranger just laughs at the idea that Ahab will ever be all right. Um, and so they, they have kind of a, a back and forth about, like, what do you, what does this guy know about Ahab? Um, and what do they not know? Uh. Yes. And I, I... I, I'm just sitting on something. I'm sorry. It's 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 hard to hold hold on. But please continue. Yeah. So the only all that Ishmael uh, he admits that all he really knows about Ahab is just that he's a good whale hunter and a good captain to his crew. Um, and uh, the stranger says that those are true. Uh, but he goes on to ask, uh, does Ishmael know anything about this whole list of vaguely sketched adventures uh, that Ahab has had? Um, and he eventually. It says, like, okay, well, you probably know about the one where he lost his leg to a whale, since almost everyone seems to know about that one. Um, and Ishmael says, yes, he does. Uh, so, so, um, could I get you to list a few of those, uh, a few of those adventures that Ahab is, is discussed, or, or read that section? Yeah, Cause I've, I've absolutely. Yeah, no, on. for sure. Uh, I, I think, uh, you, you've gotten to read a bunch of the stuff, so I, I'd yeah, like yeah, to read please it. please do um, it. Uh, so, so... Uh, he's, he's asking, you know, like, what did people tell you about him? Uh, but nothing about that thing that happened to him off Cape Horn long ago when he lay like dead for three days and nights. Nothing about that deadly scrimmage with the Spaniard afore the altar in Santa. Heard nothing about that, eh? Nothing about the silver calabash he spat into? And nothing about losing his leg last voyage according to the prophecy? Um, didn't you hear a word about them matters and something more, eh? So that's, uh, I think that's the whole... That, that's the list. And now, a quiz. It, this is spoilers, but how many of these, which of these, do you think ever come up again? I would assume only the details about him losing his leg. That would be correct. Uh, the silver calabash, nothing. I, I name-searched it through the document, nothing. The uh, Spaniard afore the altar in Santa, nope. Um... What happened off Cape Horn where he lay like dead for three days and nights? Your guess is as good as anyone else's, because Melville took I mean, that I'm, one to the grave. Of course, like, that's, you, I, like, okay, not to, I, I don't mean to, like, you're, you're totally right, it's a little disappointing that those never come up No, again, I think but, it's like, hilarious. Like, that's, of course, that's how it had to be. Uh, like, that's how this works. That's what this, like, uh, trope is, you know? Um. I, it, it wouldn't be nearly as effective in this section if, if, if he went on to tell us about these things later, well, you know? I mean, I think that later, in, in theory, in a book that was doing something slightly different, those things would come up because they in some way predestined or predetermined or described what was going to happen. Like things like the silver calabash and the prophecy that he would lose his leg. We don't hear about that. We don't learn more about that. And which means that suddenly we're cut off from the reason why his leg is supposed to have been lost within this this framework, and the framework of literally prophecy, in this case is the the page is called The Prophet, but he prophesies nothing. He he doesn't even describe events that we later learn about, or 
explain that we can understand Ahab through them. In fact, if these are the way to understand Ahab, we never get them. Yeah, no, that's that's true. Um, so, uh, there, there's a little more, like, kind of hinting at, at knowing more than he says, where uh, Ishmael says, yeah, I, I, I know all about him losing his leg, and the stranger says, oh, I doubt whether you really know all about it. Uh, and then... He seems to change his mind, uh, saying that, you know, they're already shipped, and what's done is done, and maybe he's thought better of giving them whatever warning he was trying to give them. Um, which, uh, you know, of course that makes uh, Ishmael want to tell him to, like, just spit it out. Um, and he won't. Uh, and then Ishmael says, oh, you're just pretending. Um, so they finally part, but the, at the very last moment... Uh, Ishmael asks the stranger's name and learns that it's Elijah. Eh? Um, Sorry. Yeah, so I, I think that clearly, uh, I, I, I think he doesn't make it explicit, but I think there must have been a moment for Ishmael where he was like, oh, this idiot. Wait a minute, his name is Elijah? What if? <laughs> um, Maybe. It's possible. It's definitely not, but it's possible. <laughs> he hasn't even said anything. All he's done has been like, oh, you know, you really, oh, the Pequot, hmm? Oh, ooh. ooh the like, silver calabash, the scrimmage before the altar. Mm, you're interested in, you don't know about any of those? Mm, bye. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I specifically mean he hasn't, like, said anything bad about the Pequod. Or about Ahab. No, he's, he's just, just said that Ahab is, like, too much. Yeah, and, and he's also just sort of, like, stared at the Pequod meaningfully. Um, <laughs> but much less communicatively than, than um, Queequeg steers, stares meaningfully. Well, yes. Uh... So uh, Ishmael and Queequeg go away talking about what a humbug he was. Um, and uh, Ishmael realizes that the guy is following them. Um, which, uh, that uh, makes him really speculate about what all of this weird shit might mean. Um, I guess, you know, with the idea that if he's really being that persistent as following us, like, maybe he actually has something important to say. Uh... But he tries to catch up with Elijah again by retracing their steps, and then um, he just... Uh, but but um, when he catches up with him, Elijah just keeps going and doesn't seem to notice them. Uh, so that leaves Ishmael thinking, okay, he was uh, full of shit after all. And that's the end of that chapter. Uh, with Ishmael feeling confident that uh, no dark omens have been produced. I mean... Have they not? I mean, yeah, like, no, we can, like, comprehend the most basic form of foreshadowing, yes. But it's... I, I'm not trying to say that it's bad. I'm just saying, no, like, no, no, I know. this I'm is just very saying, clear. It's, it's very clear foreshadowing, but none of the contents of it have anything to do with things that come except for the leg, and that isn't, like... Again, I think it's just wild that in a book that's supposed to be this, like, huge symbolic tract about the, the vengeance of um, Ahab and his, his vendetta with the whale, we have this, the first thing we learn about him has nothing to do with that. It's this framework of signs and prophecy and symbol, none of which will ever matter in the text. Yeah, more or less. It's wild. Uh... I, I will say but, I don't think this is quite the first thing we've learned about Ahab. Like, the first things we learned about Ahab were a few chapters ago. Okay, that's um, that's fair. But, like, those are all people saying, oh, yeah, Ahab's a great man and a great captain. I mean, he's been a bit bad since his leg. And it's all... What I mean is that 
you, no, you're right. We get, like, a description of his character in a number of ways, but, like, the the huge momentousness around Ahab that really only shows, that shows up here is all, like, again, just compl- never articulated in any way, and I just think it's wild. Yeah. <sighs> I want to know what's up with that silver calabash. Well, I would imagine, so, so aren't that, what that sounds like to me is, um, I I believe there are some, like, uh, psychoactive plants, um, where, like, the preparation of it involves, uh, spitting into the, like, the The liquid that people have prepared. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really don't understand the slightest thing about this, I just have vaguely heard of this at some point yeah Um, i mean we don't know maybe he like we know that there was a silver calabash which is already like is that a silvered gourd is that a gourd with like silver plates we don't know and he spat into it and maybe he got some kind of prophecy but we don't know anything about this and i don't think it's meant to be comprehensible it's just meant to be vague yeah no definitely and like to be clear like the the thing, I mean, I think if, if what it's suggesting is that, like, he partook in some kind of, you know, uh, psychedelic ritual, like, that itself, pretty wild. Yeah, uh, yeah. Or, like, witchcraft or something like that. It's, huh. Also. Or perhaps he was just, like, exceedingly rude at a party. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, I just, the other thing I want to say is that if Melville had a Twitter account now, do you think that, like... Years after this was published, he'd post, by the way, here's what's up with the Silver Calabash. I really don't know that much about, like, I mean, Melville no, that wasn't a, a person. Seri- that wasn't a serious question. That was okay, just... Okay, well, I mean, because here's the thing. There are, I think, like, authors who would do that, but I have no idea whether Melville is one of them. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm just enjoying the idea of the, the, the Moby Dick, like, expanded can- internet canon based on the le- <laughs> the things he sent to, like, his Usenet server jeez jeez that's a to me that is a cursed concept (laughs) what the 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 whale dot two no whale dot two is something else entirely the uh like the whale dot wikia dot com yeah moby dick wiki it's the track of all the canon facts i hate it well also just imagine melville going online to defend the whales anatomy section of moby dick Oh my gosh. Wow. Against all present and future knowledge. Alright. He's a whale truther. No. (laughs) Okay, Uh, so chapter 20 uh, is called All Astir. Um, And this this basically concerns outfitting the Pequod for the voyage, uh, Mm -hmm. which takes place over the next few days. Um, During this time, Peleg mostly stays on board in the little... Uh, whalebone tent that he has ordering people around uh, while Bildad mostly takes care of purchasing the supplies Um, the ship's company are told to get their things on board as soon as possible uh, which Ishmael and Queequeg do but then some time passes between that and when the ship actually leaves Um, which Ishmael doesn't seem too bothered by uh, and he feels isn't really surprising given that it needs to be the ship needs to be outfitted with the full complement of things that you need for housekeeping for three years on the ocean, with very little access to any kind of replacements. Um, and uh, he also explains that uh, the, you know, the immense number of things that you need to outfit the ship with uh, 
it's uh, particularly a big deal for a whaling vessel um, because whaling vessels are especially whaling voyages are especially long, um, and there's a lot of things specific to whaling that you can't replace and also things are going to get destroyed by whales. Right. Yes. Also, <laughs> that sorry, I shouldn't have glossed over that. That's actually probably the most important reason uh, is that uh, whaling ships suffer accidents where like. Their supplies are broken much I mean, more often. I think it's fair to say that whaling ships suffer intentionals. Wait, no, I can't say that. That is the book's central question. If a whale kills you, was it an accident or intentional? And is it God's fault? Sorry. Well, um, let's see what he actually says in this passage. Yeah, yeah, uh, he, What does he call... He says okay, whaling he vessels are so the most exposed to accidents of all kinds. You're right. I'm just... I, I mean, that doesn't... That doesn't mean that uh, you're you're wrong about like the the, the big question of like uh, is it a whale's fault? Um, like I, I do think that he's he is alluding to the extremely dangerous nature of it, and he he is using the word accident to refer to it. So yes. you're not wrong to like see that theme. Yeah. Or or rather a take on that theme. Yes. Uh, I I do also really love the phrase. Um, Hence the spare boats, spare spars, and spare lines and harpoons, and spare everythings, almost, but a spare captain and duplicate ship, while they currently have three captains on board. Yes, that's true. Um, so, uh, so the uh, Pequod's main inventory uh, has already been completed by the time they signed on, so, um, hence why it only takes a couple days, um, the person who's organizing and, and personally performing a lot of, like, carrying things onto the ship is Bildad's sister, Aunt Charity, um, who is, is one of those, you know, one of those 19th century novel figures whose, like, name is what they are, you know? Yeah, she's, I, I was about to say, it's it's nice that we just have a completely transparent, meta, like, figurative character just walking into the action, doing some stuff, and then leaving. Yeah, so it's it's specified that she's constantly um, bringing little things on board that uh, she thinks people might need to make life on the ship more comfortable. Um, sounds very yeah. sweet. But there's also a little a little bit of complication there because it also notes that you know, uh, and like a sister of charity to this charitable aunt, charity bustle about hither and thither, ready to turn her hand and heart to anything that promised to yield safety, comfort, and consolation to all on board a ship in which her beloved brother Bildad was concerned, and which he herself owned a score or two of well-saved dollars. There's like this, I, there's something, which we already talked about with Bildad, but there's this interesting interrelation of virtue and capital here, because she, she yeah. literally owns capital in the ship. Yes. Yeah, no, it's very clear that uh, a, a major reason for her caring about all this so much is that, you know, it is uh, her livelihood and Bildad's livelihood. Um, yeah. Which definitionally makes it not charity. I, I guess that's true. Like, that, that, I mean, that's, that's my point. Is like, if charity is giving without a personal stake in the matter, or giving to someone less fortunate... You could argue that part of what's going on with Aunt Charity here is that she's not necessarily quite as charitable or quite as purely charitable as the figure might appear. Yeah, that's fair. Although I do think, you know, the fact that it, it specifies that she's trying to make the, life comfortable for people. Yeah, yeah. I'm not life, saying that Which that really, like, I mean, you would almost think, you know, 
based on like Bildad's general yeah, behavior. That, that's fair uh, I, That's not particularly in the interest of their bottom line. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's a complicated question, and I think that much like that question of accidents, incidents, and large sea fish. Um, <laughs> sorry, uh, that was a real dumb joke. Because um, they're they're fish, you see. Whales are fish. Yes, no, I, um, I, yeah, I, yeah, I know. No, I know. Um, sorry, but the. Um, I just think that it's interesting that the question of whether someone can purely sort of symbolize that thing and whether that appearance doesn't hide some, whether that appearance of virtue or charity or like a purely spiritual feeling doesn't hide some material concern is, I think, also part of the general questions of this book where the material and the ideal are so often intermingled into single symbolic individuals is charity charitable or does Ishmael merely read her as charitable because she is charity? Yeah, that's a, that's definitely, yeah, I think all that is very like present here. Mm -hmm. Also, there is just the straightforwardly just kind of funny image of her, you know, being this, this spinster aunt of charity or this, this sister of Bildad's bustling up the uh, gangplank with an oil ladle in one hand and a still longer wailing lance in the other. Yes. I just think that's funny. It is. It's good. Uh, so uh, throughout all of this, Ishmael tries to learn more about Ahab, uh, but all he hears about him is that he's getting better and better and he's expected on the ship any day now. Um, and it troubles him uh, to think of setting sail without ever meeting, uh, you know, as he puts it, uh, the man who is to be the absolute dictator of, of it, of the ship. Um, but he... Uh, in a way that he seems to be looking back on with um, some criticism here. He completely puts those thoughts out of his head. Yep. Um. Uh, yeah, he, he specifically says that, um, you know, when a man suspects any wrong, it sometimes happens that if he be already involved in the matter, he insensibly tries to cover up his suspicions even from himself. So yeah, that's that's a very straightforward statement that something's wrong there. Yeah, and that he, you know, uh, you get the sense that... Uh, you know, that there's some regret. Mm, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. But surely, Anyways. shipping out with Captain Ahab on the Pequod is never a bad decision. <laughs> so, uh, then, finally, uh, it's announced that the ship is going to sail. And that's the end of the chapter. Yay! And, we uh, get to go to sea in the Pequod. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> But but uh, be honest, you are actually uh, extremely excited. Oh, I'm incredibly for hyped for actually. Yes, I'm incredibly hyped for them actually getting on a ship and going somewhere. All of my sarcasm about how this is going to end in a lot of tears is just self defense against these characters. <laughs> so uh, chapter twenty one is called "Going Aboard." Uh, so Queequeg and Ishmael get to the wharf early in the morning, um, and Ishmael can see some shadowy figures of sailors running toward the ship, and he judges because of that that the ship will be departing at dawn. Um, but before they can get on board, they're accosted by Elijah again. Uh, so uh, they, they, you know, Ishmael tries to get him to leave, but he won't. Um, and uh, the, the last straw for Ishmael is when um, Elijah asks, you know, he, he asks, where are they going? Uh... And uh, Ishmael said, oh, the Indian and Pacific Oceans. And Elijah asked, so will you be back before breakfast? Um, 
which uh, basically, I think uh, to Ishmael, that's like just such nonsense that he can't take it. And he's like, all right, he's cracked. Um, yeah. I will say you mentioned sailors running ahead and something Elijah here does. I right, think. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, that's like the next line in my summary. Um, yeah, so so after like Ishmael tries to move along, uh, but Elijah asks whether he saw anything like men going towards that ship a while ago. Um, so so it, Elijah is asking about those figures of sailors that Ishmael saw or thought he saw. Um, hmm. Yeah, the, the thing I want to mention is that I think in this context, uh, there it's said that they're, you know... Um, running ahead there uh in in the dialogue but i think that's meant in the sense of running in a sailing sense it basically just is in going ahead or staying ahead of us oh i see so you don't, you don't think it's, I, I think uh, they i think they might have been walking running. yeah i think they might have been walking oh, well that's okay, a really fair. petty thing to care about i'm sorry i just no no i i actually i do appreciate it it changes my mental image of the scene for sure um so uh so you know, Ishmael, uh, Ishmael kind of doubts what he says. He says he thinks he saw them. It was too dim to be sure. Um, he leaves Elijah. Elijah catches up again. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, he asks, he asks whether Ishmael can find them now. Um, I'm going into the details of this because I, I don't really understand what's going on with these men that Ishmael sees at the ship and Elijah knowing about them. Yeah, and- that, um... That takes a while. That that one pays off in, like, I'll be honest, a stupid number of pages. I had to go back when I was first reading to remember what the hell that was. So it'll oh, be a while. are stowaways? No. That's my guess. Okay. They're weirder than that. Okay. Well, I, I look forward to learning who these shadowy figures are. Huzzah. Um, all right. So uh, I just seems to finally make up his mind uh, that... Uh, Ishmael and Queequeg are doomed, um, and he says he was going to warn them, but cuts himself off before he actually says what the warning was and bids them a final farewell. Uh, so Ishmael and Queequeg get on to the Pequod, um, where there's, uh, no signs of anyone around. Um, well, they, they managed to find one person, uh, who is a rigger asleep on some chests below. Um, a rigger being, uh as I think is, like, implied later on, someone who is, like, hired to, fi- like, rig the ship, but who isn't actually going to sail on it. Um, I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Ishmael asked Queequeg where the men he saw went, uh, but Queequeg didn't see them. So now Ishmael's worrying that maybe he did see- just, he was just seeing things. Um, Gentle listeners, you will know that those are going to come up in, like, a lot of pages. So, uh, he distracts himself from this concern by morbidly suggesting that he and Queequeg sit up with the body, meaning, like, wait around with the sleeping man. Um, and Queequeg takes that as an invitation to sit on the guy's butt. Um. <laughs> right, this. <laughs> yeah, this. Uh, so. This. So, what follows is a section where. Uh, Queequeg explains that in his country, um, people of rank have, like, uh, servants whom they have intentionally fattened up for use as chairs. Uh, shit is wild! Like, this is, uh, this is not as viscerally disturbing to me as the, 
cannibal feast earlier, but it is definitely on a similar level of like, wow, this is just meant to be some uh, very unusual behavior. Yeah. Uh, so then after after dropping that bomb, Quigquig uh, also points out that it would be very easy for him to kill the sleeping man with his tomahawk pipe. Um, and he's, he's starting to go into stories about the dual uses of that tool uh, when the smoke uh, from the pipe finally wakes the guy up um, and he asks who those two are. And uh, Ishmael explains that they're shipped on the Pequod uh, and uh, confirms that the ship does sail today and the captain came aboard last night. Ishmael wants to ask more about him, but a noise on deck alerts the rigger to Starbuck's presence and he heads on deck to get to work. And, and Ish- I think that's our first reference to Starbuck. Yeah, yeah. He's just, uh, the rigger just like says his name. We don't actually know who he is, except that obviously he's in charge. Well, um, clearly coffee is here. <laughs> yeah, it is it is a little weird, uh, just, you know, reading the word Starbuck. Yeah. It, it has been I, irrevocably I think turned into a brand. Yeah, it, it has definitely become a brand, but also it's just wild to think that that brand was probably, maybe not directly, but I can't imagine that Starbuck, which has like that naval theme, wasn't in some at some remove, ultimately, inspired by Moby Dick. And that's just wild, as we will see for Starbuck-related reasons as we continue. Yeah, fair enough. I I know nothing about the origin of the Starbucks brand name, and I refuse to look that up at the moment. Uh-huh. Yeah, fair. Uh, I'm not planning on looking it up either. Yeah, so uh, Ishmael and Queequeg also head to, deck, head to the deck of the ship, and uh, the whole crew slowly assembles, but there is still no sign of Ahab. He remained invisibly enshrined within his cabin. Yes. Uh, That's definitely not sinister even a little. Yes. Uh, Can't really think of anything in particular to say about this chapter. I've already expressed my dismay at the chair people. Yeah, I I don't... I I can't. I refuse. (laughs) It is genuinely just... Like... I have been something of an apologist for the cartoony cannibalism in this book, not saying that it's in any way anthropologically correct or even a reasonable thing, but I think that it serves a purpose in the story. This thing? No. Melville, stop. It's, uh, it's very, you know, deviant art. Wow. Had that angle wow. not occurred to you? I, no, honestly, it hadn't. Well. Honestly, I had been free of that, and now I'm not. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you monster. God, no! I you were you were okay. so innocent. I uh, I can't believe God, you didn't no, see I that just... human furniture is you know a thing. Yeah, no, I yeah. Now now I'm thinking of that. Cool, sure, why not? Great. Um, no, I was just thinking that this was like a really dumb instance of the like parody commentary thing, and maybe based on some story Melville heard in uh, in the Pacific, and like. Like, the basic element of it that I thought was like, oh, it's, you know, it's monarchism, but, you know, in a version that Ishmael won't immediately find at least defensible. But on the other hand, Ishmael doesn't find monarchism defensible. This isn't like a point where that's an issue. He's not a monarchist. So I don't know what this is doing here. And now I have to think about it in sex terms, and that's bad. 
Well, would it make you feel better to realize that we don't have to end on that note? I think we said that this was the last chapter that we're doing today, but we were wrong about that. No, no, we were, we were, no, we, we were always doing Merry Christmas as well, which, yeah, I'm really glad that we didn't end a chapter earlier than we're going to because, ugh, ugh, ugh. Why do you and Melville conspire against me, Tilly? Uh, I'm so sorry. Okay, this, to be fair, I do think... I do think that it's not Melville's fault uh, that human furniture is a is a sex thing. Um, I, I will give him that much, but unfortunately, you know, like like so many things, the internet exists. We now know that whales are mammals, and we also know. <laughs> <laughs> no, nope. Don't finish the sentence. We're done. We're moving okay. on. Next chapter. Chapter twenty two. All right. Yes. Uh, chapter twenty two. Merry Christmas. Ah, good, clean fun. (laughs) So, um, everything is ready to go by noon, and Peleg and Bildad emerge from the cabin together. Uh, Peleg talks to Starbuck, who we learn here is the first mate, um, and uh, he orders him to call all hands. Uh, Bildad chides Peleg for swearing, but he seconds the order. Um, Ishmael points out how strange it is that Uh, These two captains who are not going to be sailing on the ship are still the ones giving orders on the deck, and there's still no sign of Ahab. Um, But, you know, he does admit that, like, Ahab isn't really needed during the process of getting the ship out of port. That's uh, something the pilot is supposed to do, um, and Bildad is the Mm -hmm. pilot. Um, Yep. And uh, Ahab is supposedly still recovering, so... Ishmael is still clearly kind of suspicious, but he's, like, arguing with himself about it. Um... I will point out also that the profane words that Bildad tells Pelagoff for are blastem. I mean, yeah. So, like, something that would now be Saturday morning cartoon language. I mean, I, I do think that, like, as with a lot of, like, you know, 19th century literature, I think you can assume that... I think you can assume that the actual sailors that uh, Melville is drawing inspiration from swore more, you know... Overtly. Vigorously? Yeah, more overtly than the characters I mean, to in be his fair, story. This, I do think it was also a stronger term at the time, but yes. yes. No, that's definitely true. Um, but like, yeah. Uh, but the word fuck had been invented. By yes, this exactly. And it's, I, I assume <laughs> the word fuck does not appear in this book. I certainly don't remember it. Although now I'm just... I, I'd, Melville, let Ishmael say fuck. No, here's the thing. I don't think Ishmael would say fuck, given the opportunity. Um, I, I mean, like, I'm just thinking that uh, Peleg would. Yeah, that... I think it's fair to say that, yeah, maybe Ishmael doesn't say fuck. And, and you know, like... What a question. I, I also think, in, in a way, like, it's very... Like, as much as uh, I, I think, you know, of course, Melville is, like, you know... Um, quote-unquote censoring. I, I'm making this sound a little bit worse than it is. I don't think it's a bad thing that, like, 19th century writers didn't reproduce totally naturalistic dialogue. Like, of course they didn't. That's not what this is. I mean, when when he tries to in this book, we complain constantly. <laughs> um, but, uh... Because there's eye dialect. Yes. Um, but anyway, uh, like, even if we set aside the idea that, like, Melville would, like, censor sailor's language... Like, of course, Ishmael would. It would be, like, yeah, out of no, character if you right. uh, repeated it. Anyhow, um, 
So, uh, uh, Peleg is going around giving various orders, including striking the tent, uh, which Ishmael informs us on the Pequod invariably means that they're about to get underway. Um, which getting underway means pulling up the anchor, and that is sort of the thing that they're engaged in this chapter. Technically, oh. um, getting underway means actually having forward motion and and power upping anchor, and is a sep- is a, technically a separate operation. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, no, because because way is um, it's steerage way. Um, and I'm, I may get corrected by someone who has a, either a different or more accurate understanding of boats, but please, at me on Twitter. Um, steerage way is the necessary forward motion to be able to steer the ship, because since, like with a car, it, except a ship, unlike a car, will drift around, um, you have to be moving forward a certain speed for the uh, turning of the keel to actually direct the ship, turning of the, sorry, the tiller to actually direct the ship. Um, so if you don't have enough forward motion, you're just completely at the mercy of the current, um, and you can't even turn the direction the ship is pointing correctly. So getting underway means beginning to get that speed such that you can actually steer the ship and begin to move. All right. Excellent. Yeah. So getting underway means more than just raising the anchor, though if you don't raise the anchor and then get under and still get underway, you will have problems. Right. Uh, so... Uh, Bill Dad is in the bow, watching the anchor come up and uh, singing a hymn to the sailors who respond with a body song. Uh, dis- I'm sorry, they, they song with some sort of chorus about the girls in Booble Alley. Good clean fun. Yes, uh, despite apparently Bill Dad having insisted a few days before that songs like that would not be allowed on board. Uh, but clearly uh, that is not a rule he can actually enforce. Um uh, Peleg is running around and swearing so hard that Ishmael worries he's going to sink the ship. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, this this gives a lot of evidence for the Ishmael would definitely not say fuck. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, he, he comforts himself thinking that maybe Bildad is, is steadier than Peleg. Um, and while he's having this thought, uh, Peleg kicks him in the butt and yells at him. Uh, and Ishmael points this out as being his first kick. Um, oh, yeah. poor Ishmael. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know how much he actually, like, brings it up all the time, but, you know, he does get kicked a lot. That is his lot as a sailor, as he makes clear. Mm-hmm. Um, Ishmael also uh, speculates that maybe Peleg has been drinking, but uh, regardless of however dubious Ishmael is about Peleg, uh, they, uh, they set off. Um... Ishmael mentions that it's Christmas, and it's very cold, so the spray from the ocean is covering the ship in ice. Um, I don't know whether he literally means it's Christmas Day. I I assume he more means, like, it's the Christmas season sort of thing. They could be leaving on Christmas Day, I guess. He says it was a short, cold Christmas. And I take that to being, given he's talking about the length of the day, that it is Christmas Day. Mm, Yeah, okay, that would make sense. Which... For religious reasons is an interesting point to start our voyage. Yeah, no, that's, that is true. Um, so, uh, Bildad pilots for the first watch, and he's singing a hymn about the sweet fields of heaven, which Ishmael finds very comforting. Um, eventually they reach the point, I think this is, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Ben, I get the Is se- that about heaven? Uh. It's, it's sweet fields beyond the swelling flood, so to the Jews old canon stood. Right. While Jordan rolled between. It's the promised land. Well, it's, um, here, uh, let me... 
Oh, you've you've looked up the actual th- uh, uh, song. I, I, I and think everything there was a. I think that the the citation on my book claimed that it's a. Ah. Uh, um. Uh, that it's a hymn concerning heaven. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, a stanza. I'll, b- I'll believe your citation. A stanza from the Isaac Watts hymn "There Is a Land of Pure Delight," a song about heaven. Ah, gotcha. Um. Uh. So sorry. No, that. no, it's all good. Um, you're totally right that that's not actually evident from the passage that's quoted. It could simply be about like, you know, home and land. But I think then it wouldn't really be mm-hmm. a hymn. Um. Anyway, so they they reach the point where the ship no longer needs to be piloted. Um, and this the 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 exact like what what exactly pilot a pilot is or what piloting means in this context isn't super explained but i i get the sense that it, it has to do with i can go into it yeah so i just want to like say what it is that i think it is because I, I i want uh i want to know how, how good my guess was um fair enough uh my, my sense is that it has to do with like the bay that they're in and like the um like the laws of that port uh because you have to be certified as a pilot so i'm guessing that has something to do with like being sufficiently familiar with the area of this port that you're certified to get your ship out of there without causing trouble. Is that about right? Yeah, you're basically correct. In general, the pilot on a ship is the one who actually sets like the course. The captain will obviously determine the destination, but the pilot's going to be the one who's sighting the line and uh, making the those decisions. And then, depending on the size of the ship and how it's laid out, you'll have the pilot telling the helmsman how to actually steer the ship, you know, three points to starboard and so on. Um, but in this bay, a certified pilot is someone who, as you say, is certified to know the hazards of the bay, the rocks, the shallow water and so on because after all a bay is safer from the surrounding um weather and tides and you can have a port there because it's shallower and enclosed so getting out is going to necessarily mean knowing the lay of those waters before you're out in the open ocean where there's not going to be any hidden rocks so being a certified pilot presumably and more in the general sense does mean being certified to be able to pilot ships out of the bay. And often what you'd have is specific pilots who you hire, as, as we see here, they don't come out with the boat on the voyage, they just pilot you out of the bay. And in some um, later days, um, actually probably not that much later than um, the period of uh, Moby Dick, you'd have a steam tugboat that would pilot you out of the bay, and that actually got rid of a lot of that specialty, because now, rather than having to get onto the boat and sail someone else, pilot someone else's boat out, it can just be dragged. Huh, that is that is interesting. Um, Thank you. I am full of boat facts. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it, it was mentioned in, like, an earlier chapter that uh, Bill Dad got himself certified as a pilot so he wouldn't have to pay someone else to be the pilot. Uh, yeah. Which, you know... He's a bit of a control freak, too. Well, yes. Uh, all right, so... But they have reached the point where, presumably, you know, the point where the bay opens out into open ocean and the ship is no longer being piloted in this... No longer needs to be piloted by... I guess... So what you were saying suggests that there's always a pilot on the ship because there's always someone who's determining its course, right? Yes. Uh, I think... I mean, it depends on the specific, you know, command structure on the ship, but I do think that we'll run into the the pilot of the Pequod going forward, but they're not... I think it depends on... 
I mean, possibly this might be a 19th century language thing where the helmsman and the navigator on the ship, there's not a pilot, there's just a, there's only a pilot in bays or areas that have rocks like that. Um, but I would be surprised if there'd been that much sort of naval linguistic drift, <laughs> drift, because, um, like piloting the ship is directing its course and in the like moment to moment. Yeah. And presumably someone's doing that at all times on the Pequod, but it's possible that, for example, Ahab might act as pilot for most of the time. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so it's time at this point for uh, Bildad and Pequod or Bildad and Peleg to leave the Pequod. Um, Bildad lingers a long time, uh, clearly reluctant to leave something that's so important to him. He's wandering all over the ship and looking in every direction. And then he finally sort of uh, stoically takes Peleg's hand when he's ready to depart. Um, well, it's, I think this is interesting because it's, you're right that it's, it's because it's so important to him and there's clearly a sentimentality, but it's also the phrase used is a ship in which some thousands of his hard-earned dollars were invested, ellipsis, um, a thing so, so every way brimful of every interest to him. Yes. So it's, it's like, it's, it's definitely clear that the reason he has these strong feelings about the ship is because it, like, represents his investment. Um, but also, I think, because... I mean, you know, like, it is his ship. He's its captain. Yeah. He feels a sense yeah. of uh, ownership over it. Mm -hmm. um. Yeah. I, I just think it's interesting how, especially in this sequence in the book, um, in this whole section uh, that we've been going through, there's this sort of... There's Ahab who probably owns some share of the boat but isn't one isn't Peleg or Bildad who are concerned with all of the material elements of whaling and the, the value of whaling. And as we're going to discover... Ahab's not on this to make money. Ahab is not shipping out for cash reasons. Yes. Um, yeah. So, Peleg seems a, a little less affected by the goodbye, but he does tear up over it. Uh, and he has his own sort of running around the ship last minute that he does. Uh, the two of them say goodbye to everyone on board. Uh, Peleg wishes luck to the mates. Um, and... Bildad reminds them at length about all these various little things that he wants them to do that are both, like, practical things and also, like, moral reminders. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm personally very fond of the phrase, Don't wail it too much a lord's days, men, but don't miss a fair chance either. That's rejecting heaven's good gifts. Which is, again, it's that, that balance of, you know, don't, don't wail on the Sabbath. Don't go murder whales on the Sabbath. But, you know, if you see a whale and you could, you know, make some money that way, uh, do it. <laughs> Do it. Right, yes. Uh, and uh, but Peleg eventually cuts Bildad off, and the two of them get into the sailboat that is going to take them back to shore. Uh, and uh, I think I, I cut this out because it's, it's the last sentence, and I thought it was very dramatic. Uh, Ship and boat diverged. The cold, damp night breeze blew between. A screaming gull flew overhead. The two hulls wildly rolled. We gave three heavy-hearted cheers and blindly plunged like fate into the lone Atlantic. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, yeah, so yeah, that's no, uh, I just that's that's setting out on a on a whaling voyage. That's what it is, man. It really is. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic. Uh, I also there's all these little hints at how whaling, like little elements of whaling as a, as a profession and as a craft that enter into this. Like something I only noticed on the second read is that um, they have a cooper. 
and they talk about the staves and hoops that are being loaded on. And I think that I, I sort of glossed over this when I was first reading, but that's because for all the whale oil and the, the stuff that they're getting from the whales, they don't start with empty barrels stored in the ship. They start with the the slats and metal rings that are going to be assembled into barrels by a cooper to save space. Huh. Yeah, no, because so that's where he says, you know, um, uh, mind that Cooper don't waste the spare staves. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's true. And earlier there's, um, uh, I'm actually going to skip back in a previous chapter, uh, there's the specific, in, um, in uh, what's it, uh, in Going Aboard, I believe, there's the specific, um, we're not going aboard, in Allister, or is, no, I'm not finding, yeah, it's, it's, Yes, all astir, it's, um, sorry, I'm going on about this too much, but there's a bit where they're talking about how they have to pile on, um, yes, uh, at the period of our arrival at the island, the heaviest storage of the Pequot had been almost completed, comprising her beef, bread, water, fuel, and iron hoops and staves. Yeah. And that's, that's disassembled barrels, or rather, yet-to-be-assembled barrels that are going to be put together into casks on the ship by the cooper, for the oil that they will eventually capture, rather than coming on with a bunch of, you know, empty space. Yeah, that, I mean, uh, that is not a detail I had noticed, but it is kind of, it, it is an interesting little, although, like, you know, what Ishmael calls, like, the housekeeping of the Pequot is very, I don't know, I, I, I definitely think it's cool. Yeah, no, there's there's a ton of little details about how the Pequod functions and how it's, I mean... We'll get into this, but it's basically a floating factory, and more than that, it's it's a floating factory, dormitory, and you know, attack boat all in one. It does it has to do every step of the system. So you've got things like, uh, and there there's more detail on this later in the book, and it's a very fun segment segment where they talk about how there's a forge on board. There's like a blacksmith is a member of the crew who knows how to beat out iron, and because you need to be able to keep the um, steel heads of the uh, of the harpoons working you need to be able mm. to produce iron things so you've got like stock iron and a furnace on a wooden ship carefully built um so that you can do that and it just the degree of like craft just built into the ship is uh, remarkable and we'll get a lot more sense for this sort of internal ecosystem and economy of the pequod over time yeah nice yeah cool yeah well, I'm I'm about uh, I'm I'm super happy about getting to the bit with boats. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I think we have uh, reached the end of what we wanted to talk about. So uh, all that's left is is to just uh, say um, you can find me on Twitter if you want at Char Asnablunt. Um, yep, uh, I'm on Twitter as well uh, at at Silkenstone. Yeah. Uh, so, thank you for listening, and, uh, yeah. I tried. I tried.